0: Welcome to episode 27 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest for today is Ricky Camilleri, a Brooklyn-based writer and the host of the 30 Years Later podcast. And our subject for today is the 1988 James Glickenhaus film, Shakedown, an awesome action movie starring Sam Elliott and Peter Weller. Shakedown is a movie that Ricky found out about partly thanks to my Dude's Rock list that I put up on Letterboxd. And it really threw Ricky for a loop. And I'm so happy to talk about James Glickenhaus with him and to hear a little bit about what I think Shakedown represents, which is a lost art of movie making. Ricky Camilleri, welcome to Junk Filter.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a a pleasure and an honor to talk about Shakedown with uh, the man who I can thank for uh, getting me to
0: see it. Shakedown is a movie that time has been very kind to. And it's a movie that exemplifies for me something that I think about a lot when it comes to movies these days, and that's the whole idea of Dudes Rock Cinema. Dudes Rock Cinema is not so much movies about guys being guys and tough guys. It's about male friendship and what you do to help out and uplift your friend when you're a guy. And Shakedown has all of this and more. Shakedown is a movie about helping your buddy strengthening your friendship uplifting one another and kicking ass
1: in more ways i think than than what is obvious from from the plot and and what we're going to talk about there's a specific moment in the movie that almost doesn't need to exist but is another example of dudes helping dudes in one of their lowest moments
0: what did you think of shakedown when you saw it like what were you expecting
1: um, okay, so I, I you posted the dude's rock uh, list on um Letterbox, and I immediately was like, Fuck yeah, I'm in. I wanna watch all of these that I have not seen. And I think Shakedown was one of the first, and um it just immediately based off the poster looked silly and fun. And I I love a silly action movie, especially from 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 the 80s. But the way that it starts is almost like a a serious New York movie. I mean, sure, there's like a a chili, I think it's the Chili Peppers, a Chili Peppers-esque version of, you know, a Bob Dylan playing at the beginning. And then all of a sudden it transitions into this like semi-melodramatic score, which is kind of a beautiful score, uh, I think. But the way that it opens up until maybe the first action sequence, it feels like... I mean, a, a very ahead of its time depiction of the war on drugs and corrupt cops in New York City in the 1980s, complete with like really beautiful crime literature dialogue. The dialogue in the beginning between the public defender, Peter Weller, and the other lawyer that he's friends with, who's a great actor, whose name I can't remember. He's one of it's, Oliver Stone's. Uh,
0: John C. McGinley.
1: John C. McGinley, right. One of Oliver Stone's favorites from the from the early years. Um he uh that their dialogue is feels not necessarily realistic but like it's torn out of um some uh realistic for those people but torn out of a, a crime literature of some kind and it's it's really great but then all of a sudden the movie transitions into this go for broke action movie that kind that still cares about the plot and then all of a sudden it transitioned into this like other kind of go for broke action movie that doesn't care about the story whatsoever. And I became obsessed with James Glickenhaus at that point because he seemed to embody sleazy New York movie making that I tend to gravitate towards since the first time I saw an Abel Ferrara movie in college, you know, since the first time I saw King of New York, which straddles that line between uh, artistry and, and B movie sleaze, which Ferrara did so well still does so well um and glickenhouse felt akin to that in some way though more concerned with the action set piece than i think ferrara ever was so i fell in love immediately
0: then there's this phenomenal sequence at night where there's a um a awesome chase scene where they run into a porn shop and there's a big shootout and there's a Uh, Sam Elliott comes down on top of a bus on a pole with machine guns firing. The bad guys open fire on a crowd of people in Times Square. Like You would never see that now.
1: This is the moment where the movie kind of, I don't want to say gives itself away, but uh, changes, right? Because it's like up until this point, Sure, there's the sequence where Sam Elliott and the dirty cops bust into the the crack or the 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 drug party and it's like a, a bit of an action sequence, but that still feels like grounded in some way in the world that the movie has created. And then all of a sudden the the lackey of the main bad guy goes through a a, a, a porn shop up into a brothel to execute a witness to a crime, right? And instead mm-hmm. of like going in and shooting him or going in and beating him to death or strangling him. He rips the electric wires out of the build, out of the box in the building. We're not talking about like little wires, like little red and blue wires. We're talking about like big, big fiber cables that he tears out. There's sparks shooting everywhere. And then he walks into the room and electrocutes the guy. And, And that's the moment where you're like, where I was like, wait, what is this movie? <laughs> is, is Does this movie care about the world that it had created, or is this an action movie? And then it's kind of both afterwards.
0: It's so funny. I mean, it was done with such panache and, and was so fun to watch that I had absolutely no moral quandaries while watching the movie. Sometimes you could be watching a movie and say, they brought up all these interesting issues, real-life issues, and then they threw it all away. For me, it's like, and they threw it all away, you know, like it's like. (laughs) Agree,
1: agree, especially with this movie, because you get the sense of, you know, you always for me, it's like if you can feel someone delighting themselves with the decisions that they're making and not like they're throwing it away because they don't have any other ideas or they don't know what to do. But he throws it away because he delights in action set pieces. Mm -hmm. Like Glickenhaus has said as a director, his favorite thing to do was stage action sequences. So it's very clear at a certain point, he's just trying to get to the next action sequence, which he likes, which is like, you know, if you like, I like face, I love face off. I've always loved that movie. And that movie, while it contains great performances and hilarious is also about just getting to the next action set piece
0: one thing i promise not to do in this courtroom is to pretend to you that i am representing snow white for a client an overworked lawyer once upon a time all i plan to do is play the tennis
1: axe forever an undercover cop this gun is clean no serial
0: numbers <laughs> they're up against a city where the bad guys have taken over my client will make bail and the good guys are the worst of
1: all you cops you're the best that money can buy. Fifty
0: k a month
1: in evidence disappears.
0: Plan mm-hmm. on taking down an army. I don't know yet. Hang on tight, partner. Oh, I see. The ride gets rougher than this. You betcha. I I saw this movie in 1988. We had this uh, movie theater in downtown Toronto called the Eaton Center Cineplex. And it was like 18 screens or 21 screens. It was so much fun to watch trashy movies in there. So like I would see above the law there. I saw the hidden there. Any James Woods movie would play there. When Shakedown was coming out, it was, it starred Peter Weller from RoboCop, which of course was my new favorite movie. And Sam Elliott, who I recognized from TV but I didn't know anything else about it. I was just going to definitely see the next movie that the guy from RoboCop stars in, and I loved it in the '80s. It was so much fun. It's a
1: surprise. I mean, it's 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 the movie, like I said, that just I, it delights in its ideas, and that's kind of all that you that you want in
0: in a movie sometimes. Ricky, I, before we uh, get into Shakedown, let's talk a little bit about James Glickenhouse and who he was.
1: I didn't know who he was before Shakedown, but because of Shakedown, I went back and forward <laughs> um, to the, I think the one, oh no, he made a few movies after Shakedown, but I watched the one directly after uh, and, and a few of the ones before. Um, and he's a fascinating character uh, in, 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 in New York movies.
0: He was mostly famous actually for being a producer. Cause he had a, uh, it was called Shapiro Glickenhaus Entertainment, and they made Maniac Cop. Yeah, Basket they made Case. Basket Case too. They made oh, Frankenhooker. H- yes, but James Glickenhaus also was a filmmaker. Curiously enough, he did the other movie that this podcast has talked about from nineteen seventy-five, called The Astrologer. There is the movie that was rediscovered that was the subject of the show that I did with about uh, Craig Denny, but. There was also another movie that year called The Astrologer, and when they discovered the print of Craig Denny's The Astrologer, they just assumed it was James Glickenhaus's The Astrologer because it was the same name in the same year. But that was Glickenhaus's debut, which um, he said was a learning experience.
1: I think as it is when you're making movies at this at this budget level and you're doing it yourself all the time, right? And then he made he followed up with the Executioner or the. Uh...
0: The exterminator. the exterminator. The Exterminator, right? Yes, The Exterminator which is one of those movies that feels like it's a canon film but isn't. But
1: The Exterminator I think is a really great click like text for understanding Glickenhaus as is McBain, right? I for me I would I I would start my Glickenhaus knowledge or, or the Glickenhaus book with The Exterminator and end it with McBain even though there are movie there's a movie before and movies after. Because Watching the Exterminator, there are death sequences that don't make any sense, but they're just a great idea for a set piece, right? Like there's a there's a scene in the ex, in the Exterminator where the main character who's become a Death Wish style vigilante hangs a, a mafioso um, above a meat grinder and then drops him in the meat grinder, and it's not really there's not really a reason for it, and it's not set up that well, but. James Glickenhaus was like, it'd be cool to do that. <laughs> so he does it. And like that, beca- that's like the thing about uh, if I'm, let me know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but the thing about shakedown is that the first part of it is the first time where he feels like he's really concerned with story and trying to incorporate these, I, these set piece ideas into a great story. But then he just becomes James Glickenhaus
0: <laughs> and goes yeah. for it. By the third and then, act and he's then just when you get to, to being Glickenhaus.
1: Yeah, and then when you get to McBain, a few years later, he is 100% exterminator style. Does not care about the story that much and is solely going for big set piece ideas with the money that he has and dropping the story at any and, and performances at, at at any place. That again, I I would say that McBain, while having some fun moments, is kind of the worst of his, that I've seen of his um, of his period of his his good period of movies.
0: It's so funny that you mentioned McBain, Ricky, because I went to see McBain because it starred Christopher Walken. That was my only reason. It was like, it's Christopher Walken's action movie and it's called McBain, which we also found funny because by then the Simpsons was already on TV and McBain was already a joke from the Simpsons. So we had to go see a Christopher Walken movie called McBain which is very cheesy. But what was so strange about my screening of McBain is it was in the Uptown cinema number one, which was like, which seated something like 900 people. (laughs) It was completely the wrong scale for this crappy movie called McBain. But I guess they assumed that it was going to be a big box office hit. So they put it in their big movie theater and there were (laughs) about 12 of us. (laughs)
1: little no one had seen it though no one had seen it that's why they were they were like this is gonna be huge an action movie with christopher walken and then like the first person saw it and was like you can move that to the other theater it's not gonna this isn't gonna play but there is a there is um an interesting through line with McBain in terms of one scene uh, where McBain and his crew, who he's like his former like Vietnam veterans or 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 whatever they are, they they get together because they're gonna go save their friend in Latin America or whatever, and they need to make money to get themselves to Latin America. And the first idea that they come up with is robbing a crack dealer played by Louis Guzman, because they think that like, if there's anybody we should rob, it's fucking crack dealers. They're the scum of the earth. They peddle drugs to children or something like that. Similar to what Peter Weller says in shakedown. But Mm -hmm. when they rob Louis Guzman and they kill some of his guys, they're, they're standing face to face with Guzman and Guzman is like, why the hell would you do that? I'm just a businessman. He basically gives a Frank White style monologue to these guys. And so then they go, <laughs> it's really funny. Then they, they like learn their lesson and decide to go for the mafia guys who move the drugs in instead. So like it immediately cuts from the crack house to them going to a steakhouse and kidnapping a mafia. Uh-oh, so
0: <laughs> it is like really fun. from the crack house to the steakhouse. Last night, I watched a few minutes of a movie that Glickenhaus made um, in the early 80s that I had never seen called The Soldier, starring Ken Wall. Um, It had a very, very cool opening title sequence that was a little ahead of its time. And it has a cameo by Klaus Kinski. But it's a pretty standard issue Cold War thriller sort of... um, It's really funny. I started laughing while I was watching the movie because the Russians uh, have a dossier on... The Ken Wall character and they refer to him as the soldier. That's his code word. <laughs> and it's like, why would a military operation have the soldier as the code word?
1: <laughs> that, that's the one of his that I haven't watched because um, or the one of that period that I haven't watched just because I've never been a big fan of like Cold War spy thrillers and it just sort of like it hasn't. It just seems like a B movie about spies. Sounds yeah. really boring because like Big budget movies about spies bore me.
0: (laughs) The soldier actually makes a cameo in shakedown because the Sam Elliott character is introduced to us out cold in the cheap seats of a grindhouse on 42nd street. I guess that's where he lives. And the soldier is the movie that's playing in the theater when he gets woken up and by his pager to tell him that, you know, he's got a case. Um, so they showed a little bit of the soldier on the screen as Sam Elliott was shambling down the stairs and out of the cinema.
1: And then as you see, he's walking out of the theater with Peter Weller, you see a soldier poster, an exterminator poster. And then when they exit the theater on the marquee, you see the exterminator and the soldier on the marquee.
0: Yeah, it was it was cool. It was like the, the uh, James Glickenhaus cinematic universe. It was a way for Glickenhaus to sort of uh, pay this strange tribute to his um, history as a filmmaker in what was obviously the biggest budget he'd ever had.
1: Yeah. And also he's just, he's just having fun, which is like, what's great about the movie is that you get the sense of Peter Weller's having a great time. The director seems like he's having a great time. So does Sam Elliott and like putting his own posters and stuff in the marquee has, feels like that without, without being like Kevin Smith or something where someone actually comments on them or says out loud, some dumb dick joke about about the movies, uh, the posters,
0: yeah, they had full control of Times Square for about a block and a half for three days during this production, so they dressed times square they they used the side of the street that was really sleazy. If there was some gentrification going on, it hadn't quite taken over yet, but this movie was made like basically a couple of years before Times Square got disnified. Yeah, what year did Giuliani become mayor? Uh, I think like 92 or something like that. Shakedown is one of the last movies that has like high production values that documents the sleazy Times Square. It was so cool to see. I agree. Um,
1: I love... I mean, not just Times Square, but anytime he gets the chance, he films at a sort of iconic new york location right there's like a dialogue scene that takes place at south street seaport for almost no reason it's just like new york city south street seaport there's an apartment that is like very clearly on top of overlooking central park and you see the shot like the apartments in the movie i always consist as a new yorker it's one of those things where apartments like this show up and you just go oh fuck that's a fucking beautiful apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, how did they get this shit? But her apartment, the, the mistress's apartment uh, alone is just incredible. It's like fall foliage underneath her window, her bedroom yeah. window.
0: It's a good looking movie too.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Glickenhaus did a Skype Q and a at the Royal here in Toronto. They sh- had a screening of shakedown a couple of years ago and Glickenhaus did a Q and a on Skype afterwards and he said that he was buddy-buddy with the local police, and he had them arrest homeless people for vagrancy for the night so that the streets that they needed would be cleared. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he was actually using his connections in, uh, you know, the police to sort of help make it happen. But he also had 200 cops with him when they were making the movie to make sure that nobody interrupted them.
1: Which is crazy because this movie, in my opinion, even though there's one good cop who steps up, it's not, if the movie had been solely from the perspective of the one good cop that stood up, I wouldn't think that it's an anti-cop movie. But every other cop but Sam Elliott is a piece of shit. Yeah. right? Like Peter Weller goes into the precinct to be like, can I go to the evidence room? And the fucking like desk manager in the precinct is like, fuck you asshole. And like every cop looks at him and hates him. Like he goes to the evidence room. The guy that runs the evidence room is crooked. Every cop in this precinct is crooked except Sam Elliott. I can't imagine cops now like participating in something like this.
0: That's what I think is so great about this movie is that he had police protection, and he had uh, all this. That he used all the uh, power of the police to clear the street to make a movie about how all cops are bad, <laughs> except for Sam Elliott.
1: Did you see that uh, article that I sent you with uh, from b- with the interview with Tarantino? I don't think it was. I think it was around the time Hateful Eight was coming out, and the Ferguson protests were starting to happen. Uh, so you had like what happened in Ferguson, you had what happened here in staten Island, and um you know the protests they uh, the black lives Matter, Black lives Matter movement was just starting out, and Tarantino was going to protests and he was he 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 was protesting the deaths of 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 black men at the hands of police and cops started turning on him and saying they would never watch his movies and in this interview when he's asked about it he's like, all I did was say that it was bad to kill people, innocent people and all of a sudden they're talking to me like they're James Glickenhaus characters and I thought that was <laughs> and he, he goes like, he goes, they're talking to me like they're James Glickenhaus characters and then in quintessential Tarantino fashion, he ex- in an exclamatory way says, now that's a reference <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my God. Um, let, I want to say one more uh, thing about House because Shakedown was a very important movie for you, um, for pandemic viewing. Like you really, really liked it. It's like the kind of thing that you would discover when you're in a pandemic and you're looking for any, <laughs> any recommendations for anything. Um, in the first month or two of the pandemic, I couldn't watch anything that was a real movie. Like, I couldn't really devote the mental energy to watching anything important or new or uh, supposedly powerful. Like I I didn't have the bandwidth. People were like, oh, you've got to see Martin Eden. And I was like, no, I know I heard it's good, but you know, I don't want to watch a good movie in the middle of all this. So one one night I uh, turned on Tubi, which is my favorite streaming service. And I was digging around on the list of movies that I had bookmarked to watch. And right there was The Protector, which is a movie that Glickenhaus made in Hong Kong with Jackie Chan and Danny Aiello, which turns out to be another dude's rock movie. Um, And I watched it and I was so happy. It's not a great movie, but it was the, what I loved about it was that it had a premise that it delivered on. It's a, crazy action movie. And Glickenhaus may have learned a thing or two about Hong Kong action, which he put into practice in Shakedown because there are some scenes in Shakedown that are so fun and exciting and the camera's always where it's supposed to be. The effects are practical effects. The stunt work is incredible. And I was wondering whether Glickenhaus learned a thing or two from Hong Kong when he was there, but I can't find anything about it in uh, interviews.
1: Well, prior to the pandemic, for a number of years, I host I, I hosted a show where I interviewed um, celebrities and directors and actors, and so therefore I would have to watch um, what felt like everything new because I was doing like two to three, sometimes five interviews a day. So I would have to watch everything new. I barely had time to watch like the things that I that that I thought that I wanted to watch to the point where I forgot what I wanted to watch, you know, and. I didn't have that. So then the pandemic started and um, the show kept going for a couple months, but then it stopped. And then once it stopped, I found myself just wanting to, without being conscious of it, seeking out the feeling that I had gotten from movies when I was like a teenager hanging out with my, my buddies, right? We all worked in video stores. We all like just love discovering things. And at the time I loved discovering art film. And then in college, I loved discovering art films even more. But when I was in high school, we were discovering cheesy horror movies. We were discovering weird B movies. And it just drove us crazy. And we loved sharing those things with each other. And so I just found myself gravitating towards that feeling. And when Shakedown, when I saw Shakedown, it was exactly that feeling where you're like how does nobody else know this exists how did i not know of this movie before this is so much fun this is so perfect and i think when you say like setting up a premise and delivering on it it's also doing that without being overly clever without undercutting that premise without being ironic about that premise it's just doing that and there is a period of time in movies in the eighties and in the nineties as well, where movies could do that because there wasn't this sense that audiences were too smart for a premise to just exist on the face of its premise. Right. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to do anything ironic or clever with it or have a character come out and say, you know, don't make the Hulk mad. He gets mad and then green or whatever the cheeky line that they have. And so it was fun it felt great to watch something, like you said, that just sets up a premise and delivers on it and feels like the filmmakers love doing it and also exists in some weird world that nobody else is playing in, right? It's like a... Shakedown feels like a sandbox that nobody else is really in right now, and you get to invite people into it.
0: I was... It was something that was on my mind when I rewatched Shakedown, when I was watching the scene in Times Square that took place with cameras running with the characters through a porn shop and up the stairs into this brothel. And then Sam Elliott hanging out the window of the movie theater that the brothel is above, uh, trying to stop the bad guys who are shooting people in the street, and then climbing onto a lamppost, which lowers down and drops them on top of a bus. And then uh, Sam Elliott and Peter Weller commandeer a motorcycle with a sidecar and continue the chase. And it it had the the verve and the energy of what Hong Kong cinema did at its best, which was just uh, unpredictable action, but also so easy to follow. Awesome stunts that make you gasp because you know that it's real. That's a real stuntman being dropped from a great height (laughs) on a real location. Like we don't get that stuff anymore. We get, we get a uh, perfectionist sort of visual effects, but this was all in camera and we are, I think we need more of that. That's how I felt. <laughs> I completely
1: agree with you. And I think that I, I, I think about lethal weapon when I think about shakedown and shakedown to me feels like, um, like a DIY lethal weapon. Like I don't, I like Shane black and I, I like kiss, kiss, bang, bang a lot. I don't particularly love lethal weapon and I've tried it multiple times and it just doesn't do it for me. And Shakedown to me feels like the people's lethal weapon, right? It's like DIY, there's like the the it's the the seams are sticking out a little bit. And it feels like it feels a little homemade, even though it's his biggest budget. But there are moments where you can see the wig coming coming off, or like during the drag race and the car blows up, you can see the fucking stunt wires connected to the car so they can like pull it back or whatever. And I love that shit Mm -hmm. about about this movie. Whereas there's something about Lethal Weapon that just feels overly polished. It also doesn't feel connected to any kind of realistic storyline. It's like, oh, the CIA is involved, blah, 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 blah. Whereas Uh, you know, I say the people's lethal weapon because um, Glickenhaus with shakedown connects it to that crack epidemic of the eighties and makes it about corrupt cops and makes it a truly New York city movie. Whereas like, sure. Lethal weapons an LA movie, but is it really, it's just a movie that it's just, they shot it in LA. It's not really an LA movie. Donner has a, has a, has the money to, to create a polish that, that Glickenhaus doesn't have. And that permeates around so many different elements of the movie, not just a wig flying and on a stunt, but just, you know, clearly he had to cut some story so he could do his set pieces because the end of the movie doesn't make that much sense. And there's something about it that works and feels like you're on, you feel like you're on the filmmaker's side with Shakedown. You're, you're, you're rooting for him as he, as he, as he puts this movie together.
0: Well, Ricky, can you, Describe for the listeners in a basic way what Shakedown is about.
1: So Shakedown is about a a crack dealer in Central Park uh, kills a cop. And um, we're not really sure how the shooting took place. And Peter Weller is a public defender set to defend him. But he's also about to become um, a lawyer for a big corporate law firm that his fiance is setting him up for with his father. A very kind of cliche storyline that's pretty fun. Um, where she says, aren't you going to wear a daddy suit? that he had the suit that daddy bought you. Um, And Weller doesn't really want to do this case, but as he digs into it, he learns something called blue jean cop, which was the original title of the movie, which means um, a cop that is basically crooked and making money on the side. And he starts to sense because of the, what this dealer has been saying to him, that he would never shoot a cop and that this cop was going to kill him first, that this might be a bit of a different situation than he thought. And he, teams up with um sam elliott who's sort of a broken down uh depressed cop really sad about a relationship that just ended because he killed the dog (laughs) in a great monologue one of the great monologues um and they find out that like this entire precinct is run by corrupt cops And uh, they're all making money robbing crack dealers. And it becomes a mission to prove that, yeah, this guy is a crack dealer and he's not innocent of killing this guy. But it wasn't his fault. The cop was going to kill him first and was also motivated by racism and that these these cops themselves are racist. And, you know, it becomes a courtroom drama as well as an action movie against the head crack emperor and the cop who is working with him. And then there's a subplot with uh, Peter Weller's relationship between his wife and the um, district, the the assistant DA who's prosecuting the case, who he used to have a relationship with.
0: Where I was really in the tank for this movie, and and it was such a pleasure to watch again now that I'm so uh, obsessed with the whole idea of Dudes Rock and identifying Dudes Rock movies. I love the way that Peter Weller and Sam Elliott join forces in this film because Weller and Elliott. Um, They sort of know each other already and the movie doesn't even have to flesh all that out We just get a sense just from meeting them that they're friends
1: And they respect each other. Yeah Yeah, he shows up in the movie theater to ask him what a blue jean cop is and if he knows anything about it And the two of them are just like we're just in the in the middle of their relationship immediately
0: Yeah, I accepted them as pals Uh, Without having any background, you just saw that they're just friendly and familiar with each other and their friendship actually intensifies over the course of the movie. Dudes Rock doesn't really have to explain itself too much.
1: No, it's like you said, Hong Kong cinema, right? Like, you know, John Woo movies in in the 80s,
0: they don't have to explain shit. They just go for it. And I think, Ricky, it's no accident that um, Sam Elliott lives in a movie theater. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah right he brushes his teeth in the basement
0: there's a beautiful moment where yeah he wakes up in the theater and he goes downstairs to the men's room and he's got in a cabinet in the men's room where like the you know where the maintenance staff keep their stuff he's got his toothbrush and stuff and it it, it suggested that he lives in the movie theater one reason why this is such a dude's rock movie is that, that cinema is coursing through this movie's veins yeah that this guy is a movie, like he's a guy in a movie. And these two guys are in a movie together and in the movie, the good guys are going to get the bad guys. And they have this wonderful scene where they just leave the movie theater and you have no idea what time it is, but it seems to be in the morning sometime. And on their way out of the theater, Sam Elliott orders a popcorn. He goes to the concession stand and gets a Pepsi and a, and a popcorn. And he and Sam Elliott are just walking through 42nd Street together, eating popcorn. They go up to, to a hot dog stand to get lunch. They're eating like the way that children would eat, right? Like, we're going to have popcorn and Pepsi and a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, like, yeah, he gives him a hot dog. And there's
1: a whole dialogue, right, about like, how he could find out whether or not this cop's dirty. And Samuel's like, cops ain't good at hiding money. Go take a look at his house.
0: <laughs> and in his house, he has like a Porsche under uh, a tarp, right?
1: Yeah, a, yeah, exactly.
0: James Glickenhaus was a huge car guy. And so I guess the Porsche is in there because Glickenhaus insisted on having some luxury automobiles.
1: Well, that is the thing about this movie that feels... I I I hate to use this word in some ways like (laughs) tourist, because we talk about like the movie theater right and it's like James Glickenhaus likes B movies he likes sleazy movies he know where he he's come from and so therefore without any real purpose he throws his main character one of his main characters into a, a grindhouse theater right like he wants to set it there and doesn't feel like he has to do like a have a lot of reasons for it. He wants a portion the movie, and so he finds a reason to put a portion the movie because he's a car guy, and then he's a car guy so much the fact that there is a drag race scene for no fucking reason whatsoever. It's a scene that could be anywhere, where the cop goes to the crack emperor and is like, "Hey, I'll 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 take care of this problem for you. You give me some money." And he goes, "Okay," but instead of that, like taking place in an office or in an alleyway or just on a stoop, it doesn't matter. It's a drag race <laughs> where a car blows up and someone dies. <laughs> so, I- and I do I do wonder, sorry, I, I one more thing. We, we keep talking about like him, you know, putting these things in for seemingly no reason but that they work in the movie. If to a certain degree he used so much of his money on set pieces that he had to cut story at the end, cuz I know we'll get to it, but there is a solid you know 10 minutes of story missing at the end that is easily fixable, right? If you have the money to do it, or if you can shoot the scenes, you could add 10 minutes to this movie. It would still fly like a bullet, like it does, and you would solve a number of the plot problems that 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 sort of creep up in the last act of, of the movie. It still works for me. I still love it. I don't know if the movie would be better with, with solving those problems. There's something wonderful about it not doing that, but it does seem to me like he spent some money somewhere else and had to shoo away some scenes in the the last act of the movie.
0: Ladies, put your bags on the conveyor. And gentlemen, let's see your green. Good. Now one at a time,
1: walk through the detective. Welcome to Wonderland. What 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 do you think about um the the relationship between him and 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 his fiance? I have some I have some slight problems with with some of their dialogue.
0: Well, it it's it, you can tell whose side the movie's on that like Weller is compromising himself by being in this relationship with his fiance and that, you know, what he really should be doing is being a public defender, but he's selling out, you know, it's like a mild criticism. And, you know, I think that subplot is sort of set up to be ridiculed. Like there's no question that um, love will conquer all by the end. And Peter Weller will be with the woman that he's supposed to be with. But speaking of the budget limitations, they don't have that scene at the end. They have a scene where Peter Weller's uh, dumps, his fiance at, in the last few minutes of the movie, but there's no scene where he's together with the real love of his life, the DA. They don't have a moment together. They don't really say whether or not they got back together. You assume they did.
1: That's true. They just cut to him walking back through the jail, almost in the exact same shot that he walked through the jail at the beginning of the movie as the public defender, which is something you could have shot same day that you shot the earlier thing where it's like, okay, walk in and do the scene. Like it's page nine. All right, cut. Great. Go back, walk in and do the scene. Like it's page 92.
0: <laughs> what did you think of that subplot?
1: Um, I mean, my only issue with it is I have like a pet peeve with, with um relationship dialogue that feel, especially between like husband and wife or fiance or even boyfriend, girlfriend, where it feels like they just met the night before. And like their problems are like are are like the kind of conversation that would come from like sleeping together the first time where you wake up in their apartment and you're like, oh, you're eating that or whatever it is. And it's like, no, these two are engaged. They like, you know, he's playing Jimi Hendrix and she comes out and she's like, please, no heavy metal in the morning. And he and he's like, babe, I love you, but it's not heavy metal. You're making me feel old. That's Jimi Hendrix. And it's like, he has a Jimi Hendrix poster on his wall. They're engaged. Do you think that conversation would have happened already at at, at at this point? You know, I get what the movie needs to do there, but it's just like a pet peeve of mine where it's like, this doesn't this feels like they met two nights ago.
0: <laughs> I was actually really spooked out by that um that that drug den that seemed to be operating in Manhattan with that sort of luxury entrance. (laughs) What was going on in that scene? Can you, can you paint the picture for the listener?
1: Yeah, they, this like yuppie group shows up to some back room. um, That would be kind of like nowadays, like a speakeasy where you order $22 cocktails or something. And like, dance to uh, you know the the soundtrack to me you madness um (laughs) and uh like they they show up and there's like a a a video screen with a bouncer instead of a bounce a bouncer out front who asks for a code word uh and they go inside and then when they go inside to this like fancy backroom speakeasy everyone's smoking crack (laughs) it's just like i know i know that like Everybody used crack and like it's its not the thing that it was, but it is a very funny scene to an an anachronistic of what we know of the crack epidemic. And maybe it was truthful. I don't know if it was, but to see a bunch of yuppies walk into a back room, that's a dance club where they're all, Smoking crack,
0: <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> it, just, it was, it was depicted as this uh, luxury uh, thing.
1: Well, it's like even in even in King of New York, when the King, when they're having their big party to "Am I Black Enough for You," you know, they're all still snorting. Well, none of them, none of them are really smoking it in, in that party. And so it's just an interesting thing that like all these people would be smoking crack in in, in a in a nightclub. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you gotta let me have some more you got to you know the rules no credit cash only but, uh, <laughs> I don't have any more on me <laughs> I'll pay you back I promise mr carr decides things like that but I wouldn't advise it. please <laughs> tell the man your
1: story I gave them all my money uh, but I need more
0: for most there's no other way but pay There was that one uh, young woman who was like you know finding herself in a situation where she had to sell her body for more crack like it was disturbing
1: one that one white woman yeah. who was pitching herself to a black man to 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 buy more crack i mean the movie is close like it rides a fine line of of being a a sort of at times it's not propaganda but like i i don't think a lot of people were intentionally propaganda at that time but the sort of the drug war and the propaganda for it was so prevalent. It was hard not to, to buy into it. And while the movie, I think 80% doesn't, there is a 20% that is like still, still in there. The crack emperor is a black guy. And like, there's a white woman pitching herself to be a prostitute to him so she can have more crack. And then Weller has a uh, monologue near the end of the movie where he yells at the, um, the guy he's defending for peddling um, poison to children and tells him to stand up when he's talking to him and, and, you know, yells at him because he's the, um, he's the authority in that situation over this, uh, this, this young black man. So it's, it's, it's there a little bit, but it's definitely still more uh, liberals, the wrong word to use, but I I think still a a little more smart and educated than you know, 95% of movies about drugs coming out around that time.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the other thing was it's guilty of the same sort of thing that a movie from a few years later called falling down is where they, they play these sort of racial buttons, but then they introduce you to an actual racist so that you can, you can feel a little bit better about the behavior that you've just seen the way that Michael Douglas was so abusive uh, all the time but then we meet a real neo nazi who really hates the jews and black people and stuff to make the michael douglas character seem more level and
1: right like the um the like the way that the the lead crooked cop uses the n word and the way that the n word was flung at the the dealer the, the dealer in the park we learned that it was flung at the dealer in the park at the beginning
0: yeah so th- that gives everything else that was a little racially questionable a bit of a pass because they contrast that with actual everybody can see it racism. Yeah, exactly. So, but it didn't bother me. I like I wasn't no, looking at it as sort of you know D.W. Griffith kind of stuff in in uh, in Shakedown. It didn't seem that bad to me. But you're, no, right. it's, it's there. It's unavoidable. And, it's unavoidable.
1: It's far more progressive and 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 just of the time. It's it's you know. And you're talking; these are you're talking to someone who watches Death Wish movies. You know, like uh, these these kinds of um, reactionary racisms were just part and parcel even of progressives at 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 that time. In in terms of the movie being progressive, the core of the movie is about a guy who is a public defender who learns to love being a public defender. And I can't name one other action movie about a public defender. Like I, I, off the top of my head, I can't name one other action movie about a public defender. I can name a ton about cops, secret agents, CIA, government officials, all that shit. A public defender who at the end of the movie, like learns that he loves defending you know sh- who he refers to at one point as trash perverts killers he and and then you have a whole moment with a with a cab driver who says i've read the constitution we're gonna get you to court like this is a movie that's on the side of of um a fair trial and i i think that that is uh, a surprising aspect of a of a uh an action movie a, a B action movie like this and is kind of progressive
0: it also has a very dim view towards uh, people getting a fair trial and law enforcement
1: Absolutely, absolutely the cops are constantly in the tank
0: the Sam Elliott character one reason why he's so eager to help Peter Weller out is because Peter Weller has started to figure out that there are dirty cops that are uh, going after drug dealers and Sam Elliott knows this full well. There's even that scene where they do that bust and then the, the cop ringleader sends Elliott off so that Sam Elliott doesn't see that they're going to skim the take. That's
1: right. And then there's that great scene where the, uh, Sam Elliott's, um, shiny polishing his gun in the locker room and, uh, the corrupt cop with the mullet. I can't believe we haven't brought up that the head corrupt cop has a fucking ridiculous mullet <laughs> through the whole movie. Uh, walks into the locker room and says, 45 Magnum, you looking to take down an army and, and uh, Sam Elliott like looks up at him. Like that's the army that he's going to take down.
0: <laughs> yeah. We definitely have to get into the third act because it's so funny how the movie just abandons whatever serious points it's trying to make and just <laughs> <Abandons>. turns into, <laughs> and turns into a in- very satisfying ending. I also got a real heavy on cinema vibe from the end of the movie or Decker. When um
1: when he's on the uh, on the plane the yeah. the the oh yeah absolutely I finished the movie last night and my neighbor came over like lives across the hall and I was like I had just finished watching the movie and he's like what are you watching I was like hold on a second I rewound just to show him that scene and he was like what the fuck are you watching what is this it's 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 a big fucking what um. The court case seems like it's going to go the way of the prosecution, but then evidence is found that can prove that this cop, you know, pulled his gun first and was racially motivated and and was basically going to commit a hate crime against this crack dealer. But that evidence gets burnt up in a series of, incidences uh that we don't have to go into and when it gets brought to the judge the judge is like i'm sorry this is inadmissible you can't bring this this in here and so weller has no new evidence to bring to the table he delivers his closing argument which is fine he quotes the bible it's fine it's not necessarily that persuasive it's a nice argument and then we cut to the da who's just like thinking over her closing argument and she doesn't look happy about what's going on Cut to the verdict, and the guy's innocent. So, like, there was this entire plot line dedicated to him finding evidence that didn't work out, but the guy still got off. So, he didn't need the evidence to begin with, it seems. There was no reason for the for the evidence that Peter Weller almost got killed trying to find. Then... As he's leaving the courtroom, he's just won the case. He's he's walking out of the courtroom, and suddenly Sam Elliott is standing there. He's been gone for a little while. He's been he's standing there with the Porsche that was the original crooked cop, the guy who killed the crack dealers, his you know, crookedly bought car, and he goes, Hey, I just found out that the crooked cop and the crack emperor are heading out of here. I got the car, let's go. And Weller goes, You you want to shoot or drive? Or Elliot says, you want to shoot or drive? And and Weller says, I'll drive, you shoot. And then they pull away. And then really, honestly, like my third favorite part of the movie is when they pull away and uh, a cop is trying to give them a ticket for like no reason. (laughs) And the car pulls away. And it's just like a background actor holding out a ticket to a car as it drives away. Like, oh, I almost got him. (laughs) I love that detail. So then... They pull up to this plane that the uh, mulleted Crooked Cop and the Crack Emperor are are taking a private jet to take off to Costa Rica, again, for no reason. But the movie's moving so fast at this point, you don't really care, which is such... Uh, I love when movies do that. They're just like, just keep going. No one will ask questions if we just keep going. And he they get under the, the wing of the plane, and Elliot climbs up onto the front wheel of the plane as it's lifting off. Like the front wheel is probably got to be like 15 feet off the ground. But Elliot basically stands up in the car and grabs onto a wheel that is spinning probably like 80 miles an hour. I don't know how fast planes go. And he he grabs it and somehow avoids the wheel that's spinning that fast, holds onto it, as the plane takes off and then he is like animated in, uh, like what is the actual term for green how, how they do that special? He, oh, okay. Yeah.
0: It's Just green screen. Plain he's, old green screen. He's,
1: <laughs> he's plain old green screen down to this plane. That is also green screen flying over the skyline of New York. So he's got to be, he's thousands of feet up in the air holding onto the wheel of this plane. And he starts shooting at the propeller on one side of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, of the plane, you know, the engine there and the plane starts going down and he puts a grenade in the plane, falls in the water. It's very reminiscent of, um, Schwarzenegger's escape from the plane on commando where he climbs into the bottom thing, climbs onto the wheel and then falls into water. It's very, rem- like during the takeoff, very reminiscent, but, then um, the plane lands and when because they can't fly because he shot it up, but they don't know the grenade is on it and cuts it inside the plane. <laughs> and it's just like a, a one of those moments where the director is like doesn't give a specific thing for the actors to do. And is like he's sad that the plane didn't take off. So make him feel better. And Antonio Fargas is the crack dealer kind of like pats the crooked cop on the back as the crooked cop's head is in his hands because they didn't escape again from what we don't know. And the plane explodes from the grenade. And um, and it's beautiful. And uh, Weller walks over to the – or drives over to the water where um, uh, Elliot is swimming up. And Weller says something along the lines of like, Richie, you were not born on this planet. And then he uh, walks into the water and pulls Elliot out. And honestly – there's two scenes following this that are fine and great, but the movie could have ended on a freeze frame right there with the two of them coming out of the water. Their arms are around each other. They're hugging. It is pure iconic dude's rock.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's an incredible dude's rock ending. And I just want to double back because the other important thing about Sam Elliott uh, shooting the fuselage of the plane to try and get it to land is that they almost they almost hit the World Trade Center on the way down.
1: That's true. That's true. They almost hit the World Trade Center.
0: <laughs> was, I was—I remembered that they—that he shot the plane so that it would land, but I forgot that they actually almost crashed into the World Trade Center on the way down. <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> that yeah. green screen plane. That green screen plane that does not look uh, appropriate size <laughs> flies right by it.
0: But it's okay with me. Like the effects are really, really bad. I it almost it. looks like an episode of Decker, except it's from 1988. But it rocks. And the ending rocks. And I the agree. whole movie rocks.
1: It's very Larry Cohen, uh like what's that Larry Cohen movie about the the like Q. Uh, ter- Q, Yeah, it's very winged serpent looking in terms of in in, in terms of it flying through the air. But again you're so on board with these two extremely likable actors, the hatred of the police that the movie shows and the incredible action sequences prior to it. That you are just like, fuck yeah, let's go do this. You're just like, you're on the side of the movie.
0: And we haven't even talked about the, the Coney Island scene, which is the other great action set piece in the movie where they actually launched a roller coaster off the roller coaster tracks.
1: Again, another moment where Glickenhaus has set piece ideas that he doesn't really care that much to tie into the movie narratively.
0: (laughs) I just remember thinking like when I was watching the roller coaster, starting to go up the track and Sam Elliott and the bad guy that he's chasing are the only two people on the roller coaster and they're beating each other up at like a very, very uh, sharp angle. It's like, this is why we go to the movies. That's how I felt. It was like, This is the reason why people pay four bucks to go into an air-conditioned theater in the summer and have a good time watching an action movie. This is what we want to see. And this is what the movie delivers.
1: I, I would say like we used to deliver on, right? Like we don't actually, I and I, I we do this all the time in our podcast because it's 30 years later and it just ends up happening. But we don't really get practical action sequences like this anymore, right? Like even with... Tom Cruise, who's like the king of practical action stunts right now, it's still like, oh my God, he jumped out of a plane, okay? Oh my God, he jumped across a building, okay? This is a fucking roller coaster barreling through the wood and landing on a hot dog, or like a sausage stand in Coney Island. It's incredible. And I had the feeling while I was watching this movie, and I think I chatted it to you, which was that like, I wonder how a movie that did stunts and action sequences like this now would would I would play I feel like it would blow audiences away because they're so used to just l- watching like you know an animated gray take over a city
0: mm-hmm. and they're so used to seeing perfectionism and like s- visual effects that look photorealistic but there's something to be said for a sh- uh, you know dropping a roller coaster car on a, a hot dog stand
1: well, it's like that um did you see that clip that Will I think it was Will Sloan who you've had on your you said you've had on your podcast. He posted a clip from like some Joe Don Baker movie on Twitter recently yes. that was like a stunt of a train barreling through the car and the stuntman barely gets out in time and catches fire as he's rolling away from it. And this was like a a movie like you know an exploitation movie from the 70s. We're talking about a movie that barely anyone has ever heard of that probably costs like a few hundred thousand dollars or something at the time. Yeah. And yet, I think, I think things like that would really impress large audiences right now. But what the fuck do I know? I'm sitting in my apartment watching the exterminator.
0: <laughs> well, here's an important concept. Like when you, when you're watching a not very entertaining movie and then you see a car accident where you can see the cable that they're, that they yank the car on to make it crash for the stunt. Um, you're already not really in the movie, so it takes you right out. Whereas when you're watching a fun movie like Shakedown and they have this drag racing scene that ends with a car exploding and you can totally see the cable, it's great. And the fact that you can see the cable is part of what's so great about it.
1: Yeah, but I I don't think anybody is willing to, to, to risk that at this point to risk that their movies fun enough to allow for, for that kind of DIY uh, those sort of DIY things that
0: you would notice.
1: It's like you said, perfectionism.
0: Now they would spend um, three weeks digitally removing the cable from that scene.
1: Right. From my perspective, it's one of the reasons that everything just feels like content. Nothing feels handmade. It's one of the reasons that I think people like are not, I wouldn't say large audiences, but, like the Safdie brothers have kind of taken off because there's a very DIY handmade quality to their movies that I think a lot of audiences are not a lot again, not a lot, but (laughs) some audiences are, are, are latch are latching onto. There is something at least in terms of what appeals to me about movies is, is in shakedown as well. You know, there is a handmade DIY quality where you are on the side of the filmmakers and you are on the side of the people, you know, trying to put together these big stunts and this fun story. Um, In no way do you feel like you're being cheated or that, you know, they're second guessing you as an audience member, they're just trying to have fun with you and you're, you're, you're with it the entire time.
0: I just got my first uh, vaccine shot yesterday.
1: Oh, same. I got mine on Monday. Which one? Pfizer. I got Moderna. Oh, right on. I've heard the Moderna round two can be, is is the real rough one.
0: I was reading about all this stuff. Yeah. Almost everybody I know who did Moderna said the first one is okay. The second one is the one that might put you in a bad state for a day or two, and then you'll be fine. The only thing that's bugging me right now is my arm. How's your arm?
1: Uh, my arm was sore the night of, and then like pretty sore night of, and then the next day was sore but not that bad. But I did also notice for a couple days just sort of like weird light headaches and mm-hmm. kind of a fog, and kind of a fog. But um, I wasn't I wasn't sick or anything.
0: Yesterday I tweeted, is it normal a couple of hours after the vaccine to hear the Windows 95 startup music playing in your brain?
1: (laughs) When I, um, when I sat down to get, to get the, the, the first shot, you know, you go into the facility and it's in this like college gym in, uh, in downtown or like in, in Brooklyn, like kind of crown Heights area. And, uh, you go in and it's all, it's all, um military people air force and and enlisted people giving it and it's kind of beautiful you're sort of like oh this is so nice when we like stop them from you know having to go overseas and terrorize other countries they can do a lot for us domestically this is like a beautiful thing that we have uh, but I went, but I, when I went in to get the shot, like I sat down and there was three enlisted people around me. There's, you know, one woman who was sort of writing all the information, another guy who gives the shot, and then just like another guy who was sitting there. And the, she goes, do you have any questions about the Pfizer vaccine? And I jokingly, I said, when does the mutation start? <laughs> and um, they started laughing. And one of the guys who was sitting there, he was like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. and she went and she went look he's already starting to mutate i was like oh i love this this is wonderful
0: we have like a lot of um anti-vaxxer weirdos in Canada who make a big deal. I was worried that some of them were going to be down there trying to protest or something, but it was all people who actually wanted to be there and get the vaccine. And this is Canada, of course, so we were all really nice to each other, and I was thanking everybody. And then when a a guy and I were walking out of the place, we went to the Y to get our first shot, and this guy and I were leaving the building at the same time. We were strangers, but as we opened the door and walked out, we looked at each other, and I said, congratulations to him and he was like you too buddy like
1: it was so great i love canadians i i love canada so much it's fuck yeah i I, I love the nice politeness the sweetness
0: of canadians yeah i mean you know we have our problems too but sure and we have a lot of dummies but and, and a lot of the dummies that we have wish that they were in america like they love the personal freedom is what they love but they don't they pick and choose the collective actions that they agree with.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things where I've had conversations with my, my, my good buddy who, like I said, is in Niagara now where he'll criticize certain elements of the, of the, uh, of the system. And I'll be like, you should really hold your tongue, man, because as soon as you start going down that road, you, you get into American conservative territory and they're just going to, they're just trying to take everything apart and sell it for scraps. So like, you should really be thankful and try to hold on to and keep up the social welfare system that you have in your country.
0: We have uh, Pfizer and Moderna here in Canada, but most of our supply has been coming from the UK, which is AstraZeneca, which was mm-hmm. developed in Oxford. But America is not using that vaccine. It has not been approved for use in the US.
1: Yeah, which is, I mean, I don't know. I hate to say that a vaccine is scary, but pretty scary to be using one that you know the fda is is ruling against but who knows what
0: that's for well the good news is that i was when i registered to get my vaccine it said that i was getting astrazeneca but when i got there yesterday they put moderna in my arm no complaints
1: no complaints there yeah yeah in canada they,
0: they in canada they're they're holding back astrazeneca for 55 and over because of the very rare um chances of blood clots yeah. But the thing is you, the blood clot chances are much higher if you catch covid.
1: Right. I think the same thing with Johnson and Johnson, right?
0: Yeah, that one is suspicious to me because it's only one dose and it was and it was like one of the last ones to get approved. Yeah. So, I don't know. But I would say and I agree with the the doctors. They just say take the first vaccine that you're offered. They're all going to work. It's about staying out of the hospital. Yeah ricky before i let you go have you seen anything lately that you can recommend to our listeners
1: uh yeah a couple things um we mentioned it earlier uh but the first thing is that um you know bill duke's deep cover is coming out on criterion in july and uh one of my favorite watches that I saw this year was a rage in Harlem. It's a neo-noir, um, that's an entirely black cast and crew and you rarely get that. And it really plays up the, um, I mean, I watched it because I had been watching devil in a blue dress and one false move and these movies that were really, um, sort of noir steeped in, in, in both crime fiction as well as, uh, you know, African-American history and, uh, Rage in Harlem is really that, and it's really fun to watch. And then the other thing is a a few movies that I'll say very quickly, which is that um, Quentin Tarantino does this podcast every now and then called the Pure Cinema Podcast, which I think is associated with the New Beverly, where he talks about movies that he's been watching. And um, he had a, a couple Bronson movies on there that I had never seen. One of them was called From Noon to Three, which is this seemingly, which is like this kind of romantic comedy almost with Bronson and his wife Jill Ireland that goes in directions that you just do not see coming, especially for a Bronson movie. But then even once you warm up to the idea that it's not your typical Bronson movie, it goes in another direction and the guy's got to do comedy. And he's not that good at it, but it's fun to watch him do it. Um, and then the other one is Death Hunt with um, Bronson and Lee Marvin, where they're in the Alaskan wilderness, and uh, Bron uh, Bronson is like kind of mistaken for—he's not mistaken, but like a group of sort of animalistic men want to kill Bronson, and Lee Marvin is the sort of Canadian bounty or close to the Canadian border uh, bounty, and his men are uh, possibly you know, going to kill him as well. And it's like, whether or not they're going to team up with the animalistic men, but there's all these weird peck and paw esque uh, sexual things that are alluded to between these men. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a pretty great B movie. And then another movie they referenced was Malibu high, which I had never seen, which is a great B movie that goes in a direction you can never see coming. It's like one notch aesthetically above a porno, but there's something about it that is subversive and and, and and beautiful. And I watched it the other night and I really loved it.
0: We had very cool movies on pay TV when I was growing up. And that's how I saw Malibu High. It's incredible. I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how like where it goes and in the final moments of the movie, how much you're on her side, right? Like even though like what's taken place it's it's a really subversive piece of work even though it is also you know whether they knew it or not it doesn't matter but it you know it's a very low budget like i said one notch above 70s pornography i think
0: i will add a link on the show description of my dudes rock letterboxed list it's a work in progress but right now there's at least 50 great dudes rock movies maybe you've seen some of them but i doubt you've seen all of them
1: Um, you know, my only issue with the dudes rock list, right? You remember, I only have my, my one issue that, uh, everybody wants some is not on that list.
0: The only reason that it's not on the list is because I haven't seen it yet, Ricky, but I think I should.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I'm just surprised that you haven't seen it. I think you would love it. It's a movie that I've seen probably at this point, like six or seven times. It's like a lovely background movie. Ricky, where can
0: people find you on Twitter?
1: Uh, my Twitter handle is at Ricky cam and, um, the, the Twitter handle for the podcast that I host with Chris Chafin, who is at Gentleman Gentleman's times is, uh, at later 30. Uh, we post our episodes every week and, you know, some clips every now and then, if I'm not too lazy and I want to cut clips out to post, um, and then you can find our podcast on Spotify and Apple, uh, Apple iTunes. That's like a, what an, uh, an old person says, you can find us on Apple iTunes. Um, and uh, I think a couple other places that he has posted it as well. He handles the technical side of it. I'm just kind of the, I'm the talker.
0: Rumor has it I'm coming on your show at some point soon.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. I'm very excited to have you on. I've been a big fan of your uh, of your tweeting for a, for a while.
0: Well, this was a wonderful conversation with you. And I can tell you already that you should come back on sometime.
1: Oh man, I can't wait. I, I, I cannot wait. Anytime, anytime.
0: Ricky Camilleri, thanks for joining me.
1: Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for having me and introducing me to uh, Glickenhaus, man. uh, This is a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) That's the end of this episode of Junk Filter, but we'll have another one in the next few days. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe to it. Please tell your friends. If you're really enjoying Junk Filter, please consider becoming a patron. The link to our Patreon is at our Twitter account, which is Junk Filter Pod. There are bonus episodes waiting for you and more on the way. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening.